My name is Natalie Alexander. Welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. Today in the episode, we have for you a conversation on leadership and change, particularly on transformational change. Our guest is Catherine Bettini. She served as the Executive Director of the World Food Programme, or WFP, for 10 years beginning in 1992, among other roles in government, the private sector, and academia. She was, at the time, the third woman to have led a UN agency. And just after leaving WFP in 2003, she was awarded the World Food Prize for the change she led in the organization. Today, she's a Rockefeller Foundation Fellow, and in this role, she recently published a report called Leading Change in UN Organizations. And she joined us at the library for a discussion about this report. And for the podcast, she speaks with our director, Francesco Pisano, about some of the key questions she raises, particularly on transformational change and why she thinks it's important. They also together delve into questions of change today, and what this means for our current system of global governance, women in leadership, and what she learned as a woman leading a UN agency, and also the role of youth in international cooperation, and the question of if there's a space for them to lead change in the international environment. You'll also hear her tips on the right moment to bring change to the things you're passionate about. So stay tuned. You can also head to the podcast description for links to her report, as well as other library resources we have for you online. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Ms. Catherine Bertini. Most people in the UN know Catherine Bertini because she occupied very high-ranking positions in our in our organization. Many people in the U.S. know Catherine Bertini because she had uh, high-level positions in, uh, in, in various governments. But I will let you introduce yourself for the wider audience out there. And first of all, thank you for joining us and welcome to the next page, our podcast. Well, thank you, Francesco, and it's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you about these very important issues. I am a very fortunate person. I grew up in a loving family in a small city in the U.S. There was a lot of love and support, although we were very modest economically. And I had a vision by the time I was in high school that I wanted to go into public service. And somehow I wanted to make a difference, although I didn't know really what that meant. But I read the philosopher Edmund Burke, who said, all that is necessary for the forces of evil to win in the world is for enough good men to do nothing. And I thought that probably included women, which would mean me, and that I might be able to make a difference. So I went to college to study political science, worked in a corporation, worked in politics, worked in women's movement, but ultimately then was able to uh, have leadership positions in the U.S. government and in the U.N., and following that with foundations. I learned that I had a skill set for managing large organizations, for leading large organizations. And I didn't learn, but ultimately understood that I also had a courage of my convictions about what should be done from a policy perspective, but also from an organizational management perspective. So I say I'm fortunate because I've been able to live my dreams, 
And I've been able to use my skill set to be able to help change large organizations, particularly ones dedicated toward providing services to the poor or services to people who otherwise uh, have no voice, and to be able to improve those services so that we can help them improve their lives. Well, one important organization that you led is WFP, the World Food Program. That was in the 90s, right? Yes, 92 to 2002. Which is a long time, which means that you were able to also, we'll talk about a little bit later, what you were able to do with that organization, which was basically transformational change, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. And then you went on to become the Undersecretary General for Management, and that was uh, under Kofi Annan, right? Yes, correct. When was that? That was 2003 to 2005. I would like to start our conversation actually from the most recent time. And the most recent time, you were a Rockefeller Foundation fellow. And during that time, you were working on a very interesting project called Leadership in Response to a Changing World. And there is a lot of discussion and conversations we have on this podcast about how the world is changing faster than in 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 the previous decades and how change is looking at us and we are looking at change. Now, you, you wrote a report that I read called Leading Change in United Nations Organizations. This report, by the way, for our audience is online. You can find it as a PDF just by Googling up either the title of the report, Leading Change in United Nations Organization, or the name of the author, Catherine Bertini. Now, there is a notion of transformational change in that report. I would like you to tell the audience What is transformational change and why it's so important? Transformational change is essentially with an organizational base in mind and and a knowledge of an organizational mandate or mission is moving that organization to the point where it can be at its prime in terms of effectiveness in reaching its mandate. Now, some organizations may be doing that already, but many are not. And what a transformational leader needs to do is to understand what the organization should be doing, what it could be doing, what it is doing, and then can analyze and organize the steps that need to be taken in order to make major transformational change. So you would think that, you would say, that transformational change is something that most organizations will have to undergo sooner or later, or some organizations can go about their business and, and win in their industry without going through transformational change. Not everyone needs transformational change, and it doesn't. It shouldn't happen constantly. Change should always happen because a, a good leader should always know when they need to make a change in order to best position their organization or best serve their public. But um, transformational change is done when, when there's a great need, when there's great or great opportunity, and when the organization is not fit for purpose. So those things come together and the organization needs to change, whether it's a corporation or an NGO, non-governmental organization or a government agency. And part of that organization or transformational change is complicated in that it may not be totally in the, in the hands of the leader of the organization. There may be a board that wants to have a say about it or must have a say about it. There may be shareholders, there may be constituents, but a good 
strong leader who can lead transformation change has to understand what all of those entities are and then help move them all in the direction that must be achieved. Before we talk about leadership and your experience in, in, in leading large organizations, let's, let's continue to talk about change. In your report, you give several definitions, several categories of possible change in organization. Would you like to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Well, one change we call opportunistic change. So this is change that you use, take the opportunity to change right now because you can have that, you can have it done. It's not a long-term change necessarily, but it's also sometimes mandated by circumstances. And we talk in the report about some of those kind of circumstances where, for instance, the Secretary General of the United Nations will say, this will happen. You will do this. Well, you therefore have to do this as the leader of an agency that's, that's relevant to that. And you have to change in order to, in order to accommodate that change. Or um, perhaps some of your funding has disappeared and you, you have no choice. You either have to shut down or you have to find a different way to to fund your organization. So some of those just have to be handled right away and it, in order to survive or in order to, as you say, take an opportunity for a new market or a new group of beneficiaries. But moving beyond that, change has to be very well thought out and very well organized. And one of the big things that's often neglected is communications and and the ongoing the necessity for interaction between the people impacted by the change and the leadership. I see that. In your, in your, your report, Leading Change in United Nations Organization, gives guidance and advice on leading transformational change, basically, to incoming leaders. Yes. Leaders, of course, of, of the system, the system of the United Nations. In reading the report, I thought, it would apply to most large complex organizations uh, out there, especially at a time like ours. Now, let me, let me ask you this. How do you rate the overall ability of the existing global governance system to cope with the impending changes that are upon us? Not very highly. We have been good, relatively good. We, the global system, when there is a major geopolitical event, we often change. For instance, after World War II, the United Nations was created. After the, the Berlin Wall fell and the Cold War ended, there were some significant changes, not as major as the United Nations and other entities that were organized after the war. But for instance, the Department of Humanitarian Affairs was created by the UN in a General Assembly resolution in the end of 1991. And that was precisely because the diplomats and, and world leaders could see that there were many more conflicts that were coming up, that there were issues, whether in Eastern Europe or Africa, with the decolonialization and the, the unrest that follows. So various things happened, and as a result, organizations like the Department of Humanitarian Affairs were created to organize systems to be able to help people who were cut off from food and water and housing because of wars, in addition to the existing natural disaster program. So there were, there were other programs that were created then. But now, there's not been a cataclysmic event, thankfully, but there's been still a lot of change in the world. 
there's a lot of change in governance around the world. There's a lot of change in, in the acceptance or non-acceptance of migrants and refugees. There's been a movement for, for women to be more involved. There's the Me Too movement that holds men and women much more accountable. There are many more human rights that are both accepted and, and violated. But since there hasn't been a cataclysmic happening, there hasn't been enough reaction, in my belief, to the changes in the world that have, that have come about. As a result, we now have programs that were created post-war, programs that were amended post-Cold War, that are not as nimble and not as people-driven as they could or should be. And so do you think that we are at the moment where these big players in global governance should undergo some transformational change of the type that you describe in your report? We are in a moment where nations and or organizations should pay attention to whether or not the current structures are responsive enough to the current needs of humanity. I like a lot this mentioning nations and organizations. International organizations are guided, funded, guided, managed or micromanaged by nations through governments. Mm -hmm. How do you view that in your experience? Well, it's one of the strengths of international organizations, that, uh, that UN organizations, that actually they are representative of member states and therefore regions and literally the whole globe. So that's a plus, I think. And uh, non-governmental organizations who don't have that have some different kinds of independence, but also some different kinds of restrictions because they don't have that uh, connection to government. So, so I think for the UN, it's basically a plus. But it does put more responsibility on collaboration and on consensus building among member states when necessary for decision making. But the decision making that needs to happen to change some of these organizations is also very influenced by donors. And donors are usually governments. Sometimes they're big foundations, but they're usually governments. And they too help drive the systems. And they too need to be at the table to help reorganize some of our global operations. Do you think there is an identity of views between governments and large organizations regarding the future? For example, you worked in the humanitarian sector. Did you feel that there was a congruence of positions between the governments on your board and what the organization mission was? Well, there's always differences of opinion, but broadly, yes, because the systems are built around, they're built top down. So they're built around policies that are made in headquarters, be it New York, Geneva, Rome, wherever, that are driven by governments. But then they're also, how those policies are carried out are in large part driven by what resources are available and therefore what the donors are willing to fund or not fund. And the organizations by now know how to play that game because the humanitarian organizations, many of which are considered some of the best run organizations in the system, are all voluntarily funded. So they don't sit and wait for dues to be paid like the UN has to do, the UN proper. They wait for the US government or the European Commission or Australia or Japan or Canada, whomever, to say, okay, I want to do this and I'll make a donation. 
So the organizations have learned how to work that. And for them, it works pretty well. But for the people who are the beneficiaries, they're not in that loop. Nobody goes to them and says, what is the best way for us to be able to help you work your way out of poverty? Or what is the best way to help you be able to to survive while this war continues? Let's move to um, leadership. Not only you are a recognized leader of large organizations, you're also a woman. And when you were given the responsibility to WFP, you were the first woman to get the organization, I believe. Yes. And in that landscape at that time, you were a forerunner because you were a woman. In those years, there were not many women in those kind of executive a powerful position in the in international relations uh, landscape. So I'd be very interested in in what is that you've learned as a leader and as a woman leader that you want to share with leaders who are listening to this podcast. May I add that when I took over the position as executive director of the World Food Program, I was five days past my 42nd birthday, which means I was really young to be a leader in the system. I was the third woman to run a UN agency. Dr. Nafis Sadiq from Pakistan was the head of the population agency, UNFPA. Sadako Ogata from Japan was the head of the UNHCR, and then I was appointed. So yes, it was a challenging role anyway for any man or woman or young or old person. People listening to this podcast can't tell that I'm five foot two. So a five foot two, 42 year old female walks in the door of a place that was self described as a guy place. And when I asked why, they said, well, here at WFP, we do guy things. And I inquired as to what those were and was sad because WFP moved food to places. I was told that we did guy things like charter airplanes and run trains and charter ships and uh, drive trucks. And so that's why they told me we only had 17% female professionals at the international level when I inquired. And I asked why we weren't more like UNICEF or UNHCR, who at the time were in the 30% somewhere because I thought we were much more like them, and that's, that was the answer, because we did guy things. So we, we found women to do all of those things, and one woman I mentioned is in the report is Fatma Samura, who was one of the first logistics officers, female logistics officers we hired, and she's now the director general of FIFA. So clearly she uses her logistics skills. If there ever been a, a guy place, that's the <laughs> that's, FIFA, that's right? That's a place, yeah, she's there now. So yes, being a woman was um, new to the, wasn't new to me, but it was new to the, to the organization. And the organization mostly took it in stride. And, but you would see, you would hear people say things like, oh, well, the women are in charge now. Well, well there's so few women that, uh, well, okay, so if we're in charge, that's still not a lot of people. And uh, they'd, you know, make snide remarks to other women, but mostly it was okay. Delegates sometimes had trouble with it. I once was in the hallway on my way to my office, and I ran into an ambassador, a European ambassador with whom I had an appointment upcoming. And and I said, can I help you find an office? He said, yes, I'm going to the executive director's office. I said, oh, well, I'm the executive director. I'll take you to the office. 
oh, no, no, I'm going to the executive director's office. I said, yes, yes, I'll take you to the executive director's office. Yeah, but it's, I'm going to see Mrs. Bertini. I said, yes, well, the, uh, I'm Catherine Bertini. Oh, oh, he's very taken aback. Well, you don't look like I thought you were going to look like, said he. And I mean, this happened in different places. It happened in, in the U.S. with a guy from the protocol office. Um, but you know where it didn't happen in heads of state offices. Whether I was in Saudi Arabia or the U.K. or Japan, I was treated with the respect that you would expect for a head of an agency. Going into the experience of being a leader, being a woman, a young woman, and a leader, was that your experience at that time that your leadership changed because of this opportunity, or did you take the opportunity to make the type of leadership you were using more known to these people? In other words, I've had conversations, similar conversations, with women who said, you know, to be recognized as a leader, I had to display some sort of male attitudes or traits because this is how people identify leadership. What was your personal experience? I never viewed the traits as male or female, other observers might, but I viewed listening as important. And when I didn't listen enough, I usually made a mistake or I alienated people or, or lost their interest. So listening became very important and communicating. We never did it well enough. I don't, I know very few organizations that communicate well, like back and forth in all different ways enough, but what was very important was decision-making. And I don't think this is a female or male trait. I've seen men who put off decisions and who have, they're very tough in some ways, but when it comes to making a personnel decision, for instance, that they know the other person won't like, they don't take it. And so the organization suffers because of that. So I was, I tried very hard to do all the analysis, but to take firm decisions. And that was true whether or not it was a personnel decision or a financial decision or a decision about where to move the organization. So I I did feel that I had to make sure the organization knew that I was making those decisions, that I wasn't because I was 42 and female and not of the system that I that I was that I was just going to let it take me over. I had to show that I would be able to lead and I did. And you certainly did. I, I was in the UN system already, and so you certainly did, and you became instantly known because of that. There is something that you discuss in the report that really caught my attention, is this, the experience of being onboarded in a large organization. You, of course, refer to, to your experience in the UN, but I think it could be applied to any sort of high-level position. And you talk a lot in your report about the transition phase and how to prepare that. Why transition is so important? What can you tell our listeners before they go and fetch the report about why it's so important, how to go about it? If you're starting a new job, it doesn't matter at what level and what kind of organization. You're doing yourself a disfavor if you don't learn as much as you possibly can about the organization, about the culture, about the finances, about the kind of people who work there, about the motivations of the people who support that organization, whether people are uh, employees or stockholders or 
board members. And it's very important to learn all of that as, as much as possible before you go in. But there's often no system to learn that. And you can't kind of go around talking to people in the organization, though somebody will think you're like crazy, what are you doing? Or, oh, she talked to me, did she talk to you? There's got to be some way to be able to do this in a more formal way. And one, one of the things I write in the paper is that in the UN, at least, there isn't any formal way. There, uh, it wasn't just my situation. I talked to a couple dozen colleagues who had led organizations, none of whom had any sort of preparation before they walked in the door. I think that's a mistake on the part of the United Nations, the system in, in every international organization, and any organization. Onboarding is very important. There's a group that I'm involved with in, in Des Moines, Iowa, called the World Food Prize, and they just changed leadership. And the leader who retired had been there for quite a while, and a new leader, a woman coming in, her name is Barbara Stinson, was actually given a, the opportunity to spend a part-time working for the organization after she was selected and announced for a couple of months just so that she could get onboarded properly. And that's not a model for everyone, but I, I was very impressed that the organization knew that they just didn't want one person to leave and the next person to walk in the door. But that's what the UN does. I can see. Just in parentheses, you, you won yourself the World Food Prize. Yes, Is I did. Is that right? Yes, in 2003. For my work transforming, leading the transformation of the World Food Program, I won the World Food Prize in 2003. Just for the audience, the WFP experience, what was the organization when you took it up? And how would you describe it in one sentence when you left it? When I took up the responsibility of the World Food Program, it was known and respected by the governments where WFP delivered food and by the donor governments who funded it. Virtually nobody else except the staff knew what WFP was. In the UN, those who did had a derogatory reference of WFP to be truck drivers. Those are all those are the truck drivers. When I walked into WFP, the headquarters was dirty and dusty and people were jammed in together. The financial systems were a couple decades old. The HR systems were almost, they weren't broken, but they were not working well. And the, the one organization within the group that worked well was transport and logistics. So we decided to build on transport and logistics and help them continue their excellence and expand. But we had to reform virtually everything else within the system. So by the time I left, we had an organization that was the largest humanitarian organization in the world and one that was considered a leader in, in logistics, in technology, in information management, in, in communications, uh, and in its basic work, which was helping people stay alive. In your um, experience of being a leader in such uh, complex, large organizations like the UN Secretariat, WFP, the World Food Program, I would like to discuss a little bit with you about the role of youth. There is a lot of talk about youth, mostly done by people who are, aren't younger anymore, and there is a growing recognition of the importance of the role of youth in global governance, global issues, global matters. Yet there is very little space for youth to 
exercise leadership, to, to join organization, to be visible, to be heard. What is your take on youth and the role they have right now in the current time we're living? Yeah, younger generations have, are, are important to every society and in and, and every cycle of life. But now, I think primarily because of the advances in technology and communications, the younger generations are even more important because they're even more different. Uh, these people, these digital natives, these people that know everything that's going on that they want to know about what's going on, people that are much more transnational, uh, much more international, much more diverse, and and they want their space. But the systems are old systems that we all created or worked to improve that were created even by a generation before, and they are not responsive to individuals. And that's what has to change in the systems in some way, whether or not it's young people, and I'll come back to young people in a minute, but whether or not it's an opportunity for young people to have more say, or whether it's listening to the, the beneficiaries that we're trying to help through the World Bank or the, or the World Food Program or UNICEF or anybody else, that we need to find ways to listen to constituencies that doesn't exist. It's not enough that the UN has a non-governmental organization component and your NGO can apply to be a affiliate member of the UN and go and listen to meetings. So what? That's not going to help young people be able really to have the influence that they need to have. And so it's a really a this review of the system that we talked about before has to include listening to other constituencies. Now, as far as young people specifically are concerned, especially those who are interested in joining the United Nations, also the UN has to be more, more responsive and make some changes. Right now, if you want to join the UN, what I've told my graduate students, for instance, is that the preference the UN has generally, there's exceptions, is for young person to have a master's degree in something relevant in many different relevant areas, at least two UN languages, fluency, and experience in the field. And with those things, they can then be considered for an appointment. However, it's very difficult to get an entry-level appointment in the UN. You can take the test if you're under a certain age and from certain countries. It's given by the secretariat every year. That's one way to go into the UN. Very competitive. Uh, you can, through your government or through UNDP, apply for a junior professional officer position. That's a very good way to get into the UN, but it's also very competitive. But most people don't have those opportunities. So then they start as a an intern, usually unpaid. And then maybe if they do well as the internship, they're offered a consultancy for up to 11 months. They don't get any pension benefits. They work aside right next to people who have full benefits, who have fixed-term contracts. And then every 11 months, they have to go off the payroll, and maybe somebody will be nice enough to hire them again. And then maybe some year, they might get a fixed-term contract and get into the regular system. This is The UN should be embarrassed that this is the way that a young person has to get into the system. There should be open, competitive processes for comparable jobs and it should be not based on who you know that helped you get that internship. It should be based on what your capabilities are. So that has to change. Yet so many people dream of working for the UN. 
Why is that? What is in your experience as a undersecretary general for management, right at the core of how we recruit and we maintain our workforce? What is the strong quality or qualities of the UN that make us still so attractive, even to young generations? Most people who go to work for the UN want to help make the world a better place. It's very altruistic, but it's very good because it's people who say, I want to make a difference, like I did when I was in high school. And then they have the opportunity. You know, at the World Food Program, what was so wonderful about working there was that ideology didn't matter, past backgrounds didn't matter, experience was really important for what they brought to the table. So you could be a Marxist or a Christian Democrat or a Republican or a Democrat or a, somebody who'd been in the bush trying to overthrow the government or somebody that had been trained in a Jesuit school. Or, I mean, you could be anything from any country and you just sit together and figure out how you're going to end hunger somewhere. And all of those experiences and, and interests all came together and people didn't debate ideology or they didn't debate anything but what's the best way to do this and people worked as a team because they knew they were working for something bigger than themselves and that that's why young people want to work for the united nations and thank god there are still so many people who still want to do that even in difficult duty stations there's usually not a shortage of people who want to go to a difficult duty station because they know that they can bring some relief to people there. This is a perfect cue for me to maybe move to the last part of our conversation, more on the future of the multilateral system. You, you spoke about how people want to make a difference. They want to make, make the world a, a better place. It's interesting for me because your professional experience really spans across government, international organizations, foundations, private sector. You you basically have seen it all. You have you're still working in many places. Uh, there are there are across foundations, private sector, civil society, etc. And I wonder what is your take on the possibility that all these different sectors one day will join forces and just orient their energy towards making the world a better place and not just a place to make the most, the highest possible profit? Well, I think there are, some of that happens already. I did spend two years at the Gates Foundation, and certainly that, that foundation wants, in the areas in which it goes to work, it works very hard to try to make the world a better place. So I t talked to a colleague at WHO yesterday who told me that they're the second largest donor to WHO. Wow. WHO being the World Health Health, Organization for yes, those world, who yes. wouldn't know. Yes, I mean, that's that's pretty significant. Uh, and they were very important in saying, well, how come we don't have a better way to deal with uh, nutrition? How come we don't have a better way to, to deal with AIDS? I mean, you know, pushing in different, in different ways. So I think um, that in certain areas, there are many entities that are working together. However, what we don't, have yet is a confluence of leaders in governments and other international organizations who want to spend the political capital on making some of these changes that are necessary. Right now, people are fairly insular about their own governments, generally speaking. And there's not a, there's, if you look at the global leaders, there's not a critical mass 
of global leaders who are going to take on some of these reform or transformative activities. So right now, what I would do, or in the next couple of years, what I would do is to work on internal transformational change, like what we did at the World Food Program, and then look for opportunities for change over a longer term. I, I tell my students sometimes that there's an issue you really care a lot about, whatever that issue is. You, ha- you do your preparation work, you study a lot about it, you do your work with your community or your non-governmental organization or whatever about this work. But then you have to be very careful to watch when the opportunity comes to make the big policy change that you need. It could be at your national level of your government, it could be at your community level, it could be at the international level. And then when you see that opportunity coming, you pounce, and the pounce is what's really important. I can give you a couple examples if you like. Please do. One issue that, in which I've been interested for since I was at the World Food Program was agriculture development, that if there could be more support for poor farmers to become more productive, that that could help not only end hunger for a lot of reasons, but also improve the economy of the country. Every, virtually every country started with an agronomist uh, economy. So when we had the uh, food price crisis in 2008, around then, for s- several years around then, and we also had a change in administration in the U.S. And the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, with, with whom I was working, funded by the Gates Foundation, we pounced on the uh, any incoming people in the Obama administration to say this is important to do. And in fact, the president in his inaugural speech said to poor people in poor countries, we want to help your farms to flourish. And then the administration put in place what they call feed the future. Then we said, okay, we, this should not be just for eight years, four years or eight years of the presidency, but we went to Congress and both parties, both houses of Congress passed this this legislation. So it's in U.S. law. now. Right now, if we went and talked about uh, agriculture development, it might not be something people want to hear about. But right then, when there were a lot of other issues going on related to it, including the prices, it was pounce time. One time I I had a meeting with Bill Gates when I worked at the Gates Foundation. And Melinda Gates writes about this in her book called A Moment of Lift, her book of 2019. Gender came up. And at first, Bill Gates said, I'm interested in effectiveness. I, I am not interested in this. So I took a deep breath. What are you going to say to the, one of the most powerful, richest men in the world who says, oh, I don't care about gender? And I said, it is all about effectiveness. Because if you're interested in improving the economic well-being of communities, you have to pay attention to the gender differentiations in agriculture. Who does what? Because in every community, even with every crop, there's a difference between what men do and what women do. And if you don't pay attention to those things, you'll waste a lot of money. And if you only go to the community and listen to the men tell you what they need, while the women are working in the field, you also won't achieve. So he, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he said. And then I left, I first left the meeting thinking, why am I even here, you know, if the big boss doesn't care about this issue. But a year later, I heard him interviewed on National Public Radio, and he says, you know, not many people know this, but most of the farmers in Africa are women. And it became an important issue with the Gates Foundation. And last year, they announced that they're, that they're going to allocate 1 
billion dollars for women's empowerment. And that's how change happens. Pounce. I think this is a, a good place to conclude our conversation. I would like to thank you so much on behalf of the library and the next page of our, our podcast for, for taking time for being with us. Thank you very much. You're welcome.